0: There's an unspoken rule in the military that goes like this. Don't make waves. Don't cause problems, in other words. Don't speak out of turn. Just do your duty as a soldier in compliance with your authorities at all times. Otherwise, you might be the one in the dirt doing push-ups. In our passage today, we meet our protagonist And what happens to her is awful. In fact, a lot of what happens to her is beyond her control. But we're also going to see that she did have choices, she did have opportunities to speak out. She could have made waves. What did she do? How did she respond to her circumstances? Before we dive in, I just want to give everybody a heads up. I made a video a couple of weeks ago that talked about the sensitive nature in the book of Esther. There are mature themes, and today's message does contain probably the most sensitive theme in the book, and if you're here this morning with young ears and you're not comfortable with that, I just want to invite you to take full use of our children's ministry downstairs. What I'm going to do is I'm going to stop and pray again. And if you're uncomfortable with your young one hearing the messages that are in this, uh, this, this passage today, I'm not going to be crude or crass by any means. And I'm not even going to dwell on the topics, but they are present in the passage. So as I pray, if you're uncomfortable with that, take this moment to take them downstairs. Let's pray. Jesus, you indeed are so good. You indeed are so righteous. You are holy. We've spent time praising your awesome name. We've spent time giving you what is your due. So, Lord, yes, as Brandon just prayed, open our minds to the text. Open our minds to the truths. Help us grasp what you want us to grasp. You are good, and we love you. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to go ahead and give you the first point and then I want to elaborate on it. Point 1: When authorities compromise, stand firm. When authorities compromise, stand firm. Join me if you haven't already. We're in Esther chapter 2, verse 1. After these things, when the king, when the anger of King Ahasuerus had abated, he remembered Vashti and what she had done, and what had been decreed against her. Now, it's important to remember there's about a four-year gap between chapters 1 and 2. King Ahasuerus went to Greece during that time. As you might remember from last week, he spent all that time in chapter 1 trying to raise a campaign to go to Greece and fight with them and conquer them and avenge his father, but he was defeated, history tells us. So that's what he's been doing between chapters 1 and 2. And likely he traveled home in the fall of 480 B.C. and didn't arrive back in Susa where we were last week, till 479 B.C. He comes home disgraced, probably depressed, and somewhere in that time he remembers what happened in chapter 1. He remembers what he decreed against Queen Vashti. And the text isn't super clear on this, But he's probably regretting his decision. In fact, one commentator even says that he comes home defeated and depressed, and he doesn't have the arms of his queen to comfort him. So, what happens? Well, you can't have a sad king. Sad king means bad decisions. So, his attendants, his young men, coop up a plan. What do they do? Look at me in verse, with me in verse two. Then the king's young men who attended him said, Let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king, and let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem in Susa, the capital, under the custody of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women. Let their cosmetics be given them, and let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Ashti. This pleased the king, and he did so. Now, we see here in the text, and we also know from history, by the way, that Ahasuerus had no self-control when it came to women. He objectified them shamelessly. Much of what we know about Ahasuerus from history was recorded by a historian, historian named Herodotus. He records Ahasuerus' attraction to women and even relates a story that Ahasuerus tried to seduce his brother's wife, but then passed her up for her daughter instead. So we see this guy was messed up very much now concerning this idea of taking virgins this was actually a very common practice in the ancient world virgins were taken and added to the king's harem and as awful as this is and it is awful if you were in the harem you would eventually age out and so the harem had to be replenished and much a um, practice much like this would happen to do that and it was sick of course And although this kind of a practice was normal, it was not normal to choose a queen from common girls. That was uncommon. That was not normal. Most of the time, not all the time, but most of the time, queens were selected from noble families. And often the king would select a queen from the daughters of his closest advisors. One commentator even says that it could have been Memucon's intent to get his own daughter selected as queen, which is why he proposed to have Vashti dethroned. That's a possibility. Regardless, this was not a normal practice, which suggests that the reason the king's attendants proposed this plan was simply to appeal to the king's sensuality in order to make him happy. They compromised the normal practices of the day, and it affected the kingdom. Now, the king was honestly probably thrilled with this idea. He didn't object, and despite the compromise to cultural norms, he went along with it. Not only did this plan appeal to Ahasuerus' sexual appetite, but it also supports something we see throughout the book of Esther, and that is that Ahasuerus was not a great leader. Honestly, he didn't have much of a mind of his own beyond going to Greece and trying to conquer them. We're going to continue to see through the book of Esther that he really just listens to to his advisors and does what they think is best. They come up with this plan, and his response is, sure. Now, let's leave Ahasuerus for just a second, and let's take a moment and think about Esther at this time. We haven't gotten to her in the text, but so far, up until this point in the story, She's just living her life, day in and day out. She's just a simple Jewish girl doing what she does to survive. And everything that's happened up in the story till now is completely outside of her control. But it's going to completely change her life. And she's oblivious. Right now, in our city in our district, in our state, in our country, and in our world, decisions are being made that are completely and totally outside of our control. Right now, we're probably even oblivious to most of them. And some of these decisions that are being made may not have any effect on our lives at all, but some of them might, some of them probably will. Right now, they're are laws that are being written and trying to be put into effect that could change how we live, how we work, how we travel. Right now, there could be procedures that are being written that could change how we shop, how we use social media, how we interact with each other. At any time, something could change within our government that affects how we worship here at church. What do we do? Well, of course, we live in a culture where we have a voice. Esther didn't have a voice. We live in a culture where we can speak out against legislature that we disagree with, and sometimes that does some good. Sometimes that changes the direction that things are going. Other times it doesn't, and we suffer the consequences of laws with which we may not agree. We do have a voice, but our voice isn't always heard. So what do we do then? Let me challenge you. Don't compromise your faith. When authorities compromise, stand firm. Stand firm in what you believe. When authorities do things and make laws and change policies that violate our conscience, yes, speak up. Yes, write your congressman. Take full advantage of your rights. Absolutely. And also submit where you are able to submit with a clear conscience. We've spoken about that recently in our study of 1 Peter. Submission is necessary. It's even a biblical thing except where it violates God's word. So my challenge to you is to stand firm. Submit where possible, yes. Trust God. And don't let fear take over. Stand firm. Don't let the fear of authorities drive out your faith and cause you to compromise what you believe. When commanders of Israel, led by Johanan, came to Jeremiah the prophet to seek help, he said to them in Jeremiah 42.11, Do not fear the king of Babylon, of whom you are afraid. Do not fear him, declares the Lord, for I am with you to save you and deliver you from his hand. Now, the ironic thing is that those people who came to Jeremiah didn't listen, and most of them perished. But church, do not fear the authorities. Submit yes, where conscience permits, do right, make your voice heard in peaceful, lawful ways, and ultimately, trust God. In other words, stand firm. Look with me at verse 5. Now there was a Jew in Susa, the capital, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, son of Shimei, son of Kish, a Benjaminite, who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives carried away with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. Now we meet Mordecai. If this were a movie, he would be the mentor, he would be the Obi-Wan Kenobi. He'd be the supporting role. Mordecai was a Jew. He was living in Susa, and he did not return with his brothers to the land of his fathers. We're not given reasons why he didn't go back. But we are given a detailed genealogy of who Mordecai is. Have you ever wondered why there are such extensive genealogical records in the Bible? You know those passages you pass up because you can't pronounce all those names? Why are they there? There's actually many reasons why they're there. But one reason that we are given why there are genealogies in the Bible is so that we can make connections to certain people and find out more about their significance. Mordecai was a Benjaminite. He was the son of Jer, the son of Shimei, and distantly the son of Kish. I say distantly because in Hebrew genealogies, son of... Could also mean descendant of. Just because you read son of in the Bible doesn't mean that they are directly the son of that individual. They could be distantly related to that individual. I remember one time Pastor Tony told us that there was no Hebrew word for the the word grandparent. So they would use this idea of son of. Mordecai was a descendant of Kish, a Benjaminite. Who else was a Benjaminite? King Saul, who by the way was the direct son of Kish. Mordecai is in the descendant, as a descendant of King Saul, somewhere along that family. Why is that significant? You'll have to come back next week to find out. Stay tuned. Now, it's also important to note something. The text, the way we read it, it sounds like Mordecai was taken into captivity during the reign of King Nebuchadnezzar, but that's actually impossible because that took place about a hundred years before this time. So what's likely meant is that the text means Mordecai's ancestors had been taken captive. It's likely that Mordecai was born here in Babylon, in Persia, that Mordecai had grown up his entire life as an exile. This is probably the only life he knew, which, by the way, might shed some light on why he didn't go back. Verse 7. He, Mordecai, was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at, and when her father and her mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. Intro Esther. Now, what do we know about her? First, we read right away that she's an orphan, no doubt experienced a lot of sorrow in her life from losing both parents. She's known no other life than exile. She's been raised by her cousin, presumably her older cousin, and she's beautiful. From the verses to come, she appears to be a very compliant girl. She always did what she was told. One thing to note, this is the only place that we are given her Hebrew name, Hedessa. Esther is a Persian name, and it means star. And there's evidence to suggest that the name Esther was a nickname given to her by the Gentiles of the empire as a reference to Ishtar, the goddess of love and war. And as the story unfolds, we see that Esther fits both of those descriptions, love and war. You know, one thing that makes a great story is what we call a character arc. And a character arc, if you don't know, is where your character learns something or changes or goes on a journey throughout the story. Esther has a character arc, and the author of the book of Esther might be hinting at that by identifying her by her Hebrew name in connection with her compliant behavior, but also giving us her Persian name or nickname, giving us a clue as to how she's going to change throughout the story. One of my favorite character arcs happens to Aragorn in the movie version of The Lord of the Rings. I mean, he starts out honestly scared of who he is. He does. He's in the royal bloodline. He's actually the long-lost king, but he fears it. But by the end of the films, he's embraced it. When we meet Esther... She's no hero. Not yet. Read on. So when the king's order and his edict were proclaimed, and when many young women were gathered in Susa the, capital, the citadel in custody of Haggai, Esther also was taken into the king's palace and put in, custody of, put in the custody of Haggai, who had charge of the women. Now, this idea of being taken does tell us that this event was beyond her control. Just as the Jews were taken captive into exile by Nebuchadnezzar, Esther and the other virgins are taken captive. And we don't know how Esther responded. We're not told. We don't see her inner thoughts and feelings about this. The officials came, and they took her along with the others. And watch what happens, verse 9. And the young woman, that is Esther, pleased him, that's Haggai, and won his favor. And he quickly provided her with cosmetics and her portion of food and with seven chosen young women from the king's palace and advanced her and her young women to the best place in the harem. Now, this idea of her winning favor actually characterizes how Esther relates to practically everyone. In fact, verse 15 tells us that she wins favor with everyone who saw her, and this is probably due to her beauty, yes, but also probably due to her compliant behavior. She, this could have been her moment. This could have been her moment to speak out. She was winning favor with everyone. This could have been her chance to take a stand. But she just did what she was told. She did not make waves. She went with the flow. Those kinds of people are generally liked, yes. But at what cost? She's given cosmetics and food, Her job is simply to become as desirable to the king as possible, hit the spa every day, and stay nourished. That was her life. The cosmetic treatments back then involved placing oil in burners that would heat the oil up, and then you would allow the fumes to be absorbed in your skin and in your clothes. And myrrh and other ointments were used as moisturizers, which was no doubt very nice in that dry desert climate. That's what she's doing right now and she's winning favor, so much so that she's given two things. She's given seven chosen young women to attend her and the best place in the harem, which probably means she had the best accommodations. Let me be honest. Life in the harem had its appeal. Life outside the palace was hard, was rough, was going day-to-day trying to grow your food, trying to find your food. But life in the harem... It had its appeal. You were cared for. You enjoyed a life of luxury to some degree. However, you were also denied a husband and a family. In fact, you may never even see the king again except for the initial night. I said last week, if you were in the harem, you belonged to the king. That was your life. Let's just be honest. Some women probably loved it being pampered all day. Some women probably loved it. Some probably loathed it. We're not told how Esther felt. She may have loved it. She may have loathed it. We simply don't know. What we do know is that she appears to be just going along with things. And honestly, she hasn't done anything wrong. Or has she? Look with me at verse 10. Esther had not made known her people or kindred, for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. And every day, Mordecai walked in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and what was happening to her. Here's your second point. When family compromises, stand firm. When family compromises stand firm. We have to wonder, why did Mordecai command her not to tell anyone that she was a Jew? Why hide that? Why keep her identity a secret? We know in that time that anti-Semitism was huge, and Mordecai may have feared for her safety. He probably did fear for her safety, and told her to keep quiet to protect her. It's likely that Mordecai himself had hidden his heritage. He obviously cared for her deeply. He took her in, of course. He cared for her, and he checked on her every day. And we can stop and imagine his fear and imagine his confusion. This cousin that he's been raising as a daughter was taken from him. What did that look like? When the officials came for the virgins, how much time did he have? Did he have minutes did all he have time to, to say was, I love you. Don't say anything about our heritage. Do what you're told and you'll be safe. We don't know. But it's likely that Mordecai was doing what he, what he felt was best for her that would keep her safe. But what example was he leaving We can be sympathetic toward Mordecai, I think, because after all, what parent in this room does not want to keep their kids safe? On the other hand, the Jews were God's chosen people, and to hide their identity was to hide their faith. Did Mordecai compromise faith in Yahweh out of fear for his cousin? I think so. He feared for her safety, compromising his faith and telling her to compromise hers so that she would go and live within the king's harem where she would be subjected subjected to a life in complete contrast to the Torah. Again, Esther just did what she was told. You know, it's one thing when you have to decide whether or not to take a stand against authorities, But it's a whole other ball of wax when you have to decide whether or not to stake a stand against family. That's hard. I heard a speaker once confess that he would sneak drinks and snacks into theaters. Raise of hands is all who's guilty. No, I'm kidding. One time, he was sitting in the parking lot waiting to go in the theater. He had his snacks and his teenage son spoke up, convicted by the practice, knowing that the theater did not allow snacks to be snuck in. He was bold enough to tell his father, If you decide to do this, I'm staying here in the car. The speaker admitted to his shame. He left his teenage son in the car and went and watched the movie. But talk about boldness. The son. You know, the temptation to go along with the rest of the family, despite compromise, can be strong. Fear often dominates. Fear of losing face, fear of not fitting in, fear of fractured relationships. Taking a stand for Christ can cost us dearly. You know, when Peter came to Jesus saying, we've, we've left everything and followed you, what did Jesus say in Mark 10, 29? He said, truly, I say to you, there is no one, who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. Now, in what ways do you compromise? In what situations has fear sealed your lips? How has family kept you from speaking out for the gospel? You know that that stupid saying, blood is thicker than water? I hate that saying. I do. Forget about that. I honestly think it's a manipulative way for patriarchs and matriarchs to control their offspring. How has loyalty to your family caused you to be disloyal to God? And we stop and think, well, wait a minute, how could Mordecai have done anything different? What other choice did he have? Could he have taken a stand in his own home against this invasion? Could he have barred the doors and fended off the guards for maybe minutes? Perhaps. Would that have been a fruitless attempt? Yes. What would have happened? He would have likely been killed imprisoned at the least, and Esther would have still been taken. But what example would he have left his cousin? An example that would have said, be faithful. Stand firm. Don't succumb to the ways of the world out of fear. Parents, when your extended family tempts you to compromise your faith, Let your children watch you do right. I know that means different things in different situations, and relationships are sticky. I understand that. I'm not encouraging everyone to just simply cut off relationships with their extended family, but I am challenging you to take a stand for what's right. That's the kind of message you want to leave your children, a message that says stand firm in the Lord. Put your trust fully in Jesus no matter what happens. Don't, and by the way, don't be. Don't be the father or mother that demands such loyalty that it sucks the boldness for Christ out of your kids. Be the kind of father or mother that sets the example, no matter the cost. Let's continue with the story in verse 12. Now, when the turn came for each young woman to go into the king, Ahasuerus, after being 12 months under the regulations for the women, since this was the regulation period of their beautifying, six months with oil and myrrh, and six months with spices and ointments for women. When the young woman went into the king in this way, she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. For one whole year, they are exposed to these beautifying treatments. Now, that's quite a trip to the spa. After this time, each woman goes in for one night, one chance to delight the king. This is debauchery at its worst. Essentially, what are we looking at? We're looking at each of these women are victims of sex trafficking. That's what's going on here. The only difference is there's a prize to the woman who delights the most. But they're all being exploited by the king's pleasure. Verse 14. In the evening... She would go in, and in the morning, she would return to the second harem in custody of Shiashgaz, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the concubines. She would not go to the king again unless the king delighted in her, and she was summoned by name. So you see, they go to the king as a virgin, they become a concubine, and then that's their life. After this one night, it all hinged on this night. There was no companionship with the king. There was no husband comforting. These women were nothing more than objects. Verse 15, when the term came for Esther, the daughter of Abihail, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his own daughter to go into the king, she asked for nothing except what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who had charge of the women, advised. This is a little bit difficult to interpret. It's, it's been suggested that women would take jewelry or other ornaments with them when they went to see the king, just ways to increase their appearance. And again, Esther is compliant, and she does what Haggai advises. The rest of that verse, now Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. And when Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus into his royal palace in the 10th month, which is the month of Tibet, in the seventh year of his reign, the king loved Esther more than all the women, And she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Ashti. When it says he loved Esther, don't think he fell in love with her like Prince Charming the Snow White. It simply means that she pleased him more than the other girls did. It was a sick world. The ancient world was a very sick world. You know, we saw last week that men were judged by all they owned. As showed off his entire wealth. Men were judged by their wallets. We see this week that women are judged by their beauty. Aren't you glad we don't live in a society like that? Honestly, not much has changed. Men still seek identity through status and wealth. Women still seek identity through beauty and we are lied to by the world every day concerning these things. Don't buy into those lies. Men, your worth is not in your wallet. Your worth is not in your possessions. Your worth is not in your position at work. Women, your worth is not in your physical beauty. Your worth is not in how well you're raising your children. All of you, Your worth is not in your birth status or the school you attended or the neighborhood that you live in or the job that you have. Those things will leave you empty. Your worth is in Christ and Christ alone. Let me pause just for a second and ask Do you have that worth? Have you embraced Jesus as your Lord and Savior, letting Him define you, not the world? You can embrace Christ today by faith, simply admitting that you're a sinner and choosing to put your faith in Him. And I urge you, if that's you, I urge you to do that. And if you have more questions, please come forward after the service and talk to me. Let's finish up our story, verse 18. Then the king gave a great feast for all his officials and servants. It was Esther's feast. He also granted a remission of taxes to the provinces and gave gifts with royal generosity. Now this is the fourth feast that we read about in the book of Esther, and we're only in chapter 2. Ain't no party like a Persian party, because a Persian party don't stop. Celebrations over coronations, victories, and other events were common. And the king wanted everyone to be happy about his new queen. Now, at face value, this sounds like a classic story from rags to riches. We love those stories, don't we? I mean, look at her now. She's the queen. She went from a nobody Jewish girl to the queen of Persia. That's the American dream. But in gaining the crown... Esther compromised her faith. This leads us to our final point. When tempted to compromise, stand firm. When tempted to compromise, stand firm. Did Esther compromise her faith? Yes. Did she have much choice in the matter? I mean, you you could come to me and say, Pastor Ryan, she was taken from her home for crying out loud. And Mordecai, her only family, told her Don't speak up about who you are. You could make an argument that she didn't have a choice in the matter. And I would say, you're right. She didn't have a choice in what happened to her. But she did have a choice in how she responded. And the text is silent on that. And if we go back about a hundred years. Consider Daniel. Daniel in chapter 1, verse 8, reads like this. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And you know the rest of the story. David proposed a challenge, and God gave him favor. David took a stand. He resolved, the text said. He resolved that he would not defile himself. And you might say, Ryan, that's all well and good, but what compromise would they have given Esther if she'd gone to the eunuch and said, I can't do this? Probably nothing. I mean, let's be honest. They probably wouldn't have done a thing, forced her to do it anyway. But at least she would have taken a stand for what she believed in. Would God have blessed that? Absolutely. Now, I hate to dash anyone's ideas that Esther was this heroic girl who rose from racks to riches, but the truth is, she's not a hero. Not yet. She's not a hero. In fact, you might even say she's a coward. And I know that's harsh. I know that's harsh. What would I do? What would I do if police came to my door, forced their way in to take my family or to take me, and I knew that it would only make things worse if I had the opportunity and took a stand for my faith? What would I do? Would I be tempted to simply go along with things, hoping that it worked out? Yes, I would be tempted to. Would I be fearful? You better believe it. And you know, if a woman came up to me and told me, that she had suffered in similar way as Esther would suffer. Would I condemn her on the spot? No. I would love her and cry with her and be gracious. Esther had an opportunity, though. She did have an opportunity to take a stand. You know, was Cassie Bernal of the Columbine shooting fearful of admitting her faith in God with a gun to her head? She had to be. But despite that, she still said yes. Esther and Mordecai compromised their faith in God. They violated the Torah out of fear. Why is the name of Yahweh absent from the book of Esther? Because the worship of Yahweh was absent from the Jews. Not all, but most. So then why are we even reading this story? I like to read about the great stories like Daniel and others who took a stand for their faith. Why are we even reading about this? Because even in this, God is at work. Do you want something about God, a truth about God? Sometimes he's weird. God says of himself, your ways are not my ways. Your thoughts are not my thoughts. What does that tell us? That tells us that despite how we may feel about Esther's actions, the point is God in his providential plan was putting Esther in place for his purposes. Is he allowed to do that? Of course. Does God force people to sin? Absolutely not. Can God orchestrate events around sin-saturated environments for His ultimate plan? Of course. How do those two work? I have no idea. God is sovereign. Was God asking Esther to sleep with and marry a pagan king? No. Sex has always been reserved for marriage. And the Jews, by the way, were forbidden to marry Gentiles. Did God use this abomination for His purpose? Absolutely. What does that teach us? Just as we learned last week, God is not limited by our mistakes. I told you last week, nothing can thwart God's plan, not even when you and I bungle everything up. God's not thwarted by our mistakes. Does this mean we can live how we please because God's going to work it out anyway? Absolutely not. Romans 6, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? May it never be. Church, I stand here before you urging you to never compromise your faith no matter the circumstances. Like Daniel Resolve now that you will not defile yourself by compromising your faith. Well, what's one way we can do that? You know, as we look at the text, what preceded their compromise? I can't help but think it was comfort. Comfort preceded their compromise. Mordecai and Esther never went back to Jerusalem, remember. Though the invitation was there, what kept them from going back? I can't help but wonder if it was comfort, that they'd settled where they were. Mordecai had a decent job. They just lived life. Life was fine. Comfort precedes compromise. Now, I'm not saying you can't kick back in your favorite chair with a glass of lemonade and watch this week's Great British Baking Show or hop on Facebook eager to see Jenny Gibbons read the next installment of Walter the Farting Dog. Of course you should. Enjoy life. God has given us amazing things to enjoy. That's not what I'm saying. What I am saying is don't let your love of comfort lead you to compromise your faith. God calls us to do uncomfortable things, like examine our hearts, confess sin, witness to our neighbors taking a stand for what's right do you remember when god called abraham to sacrifice his own son isaac was that comfortable no did he do it well he tried to god stopped him don't let comfort lead you to compromise your faith you know, Jesus said once, foxes have holds and birds, have air, have, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man is nowhere; has nowhere to lay his head. How much value did Jesus put on comfort? And for that matter, how much did Jesus let the authorities or even his own family affect his mission? Jesus was always challenging the Pharisees to the point where they killed him. As for his family, once in Mark chapter 3, they came with the rest of the crowd to try and seize him because they were shamed by what he was doing. And despite the opposition, Jesus would not compromise the cross. In John 6, Jesus declared, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. What was that will? It was the will of God. Of the Father to crush the Son. You know, as in Esther's story, the authorities in Jesus' day plotted behind the scenes. Like Esther, Jesus was taken in the garden and he did not object. Like Esther, Jesus was brought before a ruler, even before a king. And like Esther, he remained silent. But unlike Esther, Jesus refused to compromise. Fear did not drive him to go with the flow merely to survive. Esther's body was treated with oils and spices. Jesus' body was ripped and pierced. Esther was given a crown of gold. Jesus, a crown of thorns. Esther was favored by all who saw her. Jesus was mocked and ridiculed. Esther avoided death and received temporary glory from a wicked king. Jesus embraced death, conquered death, rose from death. And received eternal glory from his glorious, perfect, light-filled father. Esther refused to make waves, choosing rather to be compliant and thus compromising her beliefs. Jesus, silencer of the winds and the waves, made the greatest wave that history has ever known, refusing to be compliant so as not to compromise for a moment the mission he was sent to do for you and for me. There's an unspoken rule in the military that goes like this, don't make waves, don't cause problems, don't speak out of turn, do your duty as a soldier in compliant with your authorities at all times. In our ever-increasing anti-Christian culture, that same idea is being pressed on you and I every single day. Your Savior did not succumb. Look to Him for the strength to do the same. Let's pray. Jesus, you are glorious, the greatest example. You did not compromise, though the weight of every believer's sin was placed upon you. Lord, in this world that we live, we are tempted to compromise. Fear. Fear causes us to rethink, should I say, should I speak up, should I take a stand? Lord, I pray for each person in this room that just like you, we would not compromise our faith, that given the opportunities, whether those are big opportunities or small opportunities, we would stand firm bold for the sake of the gospel, no matter what happens. Jesus, we love you. We give you thanks and praise. We pray all this in your awesome name. Amen.